0: Have you done wrong things in the past? Of course you have. Have you done something that caused great hurt to someone else, maybe? Have you let people down, being the cause of great disappointment or distress? If you were to look for some advice... On the many psychology websites that you can turn to today, many of them will tell you this get over it, stop worrying about it, love yourself, forgive yourself, accept yourself, admit you're guilty. Get down on yourself because you're guilty. Acknowledge that you need to apologise and seek the forgiveness of those you've hurt. Make restitution. Don't be daft. You're not a bad person. You just made a few mistakes. You're a wonderful person. You've just got it wrong a few times. Accept yourself, love yourself, move on. When a wayward politician has had their sexual or financial indiscretions plastered all over the pages of the tabloids, what will you usually hear them say? I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Please overlook this because despite that one mistake, I really am a very nice person. I I just made a mistake. I'm maybe they'll go on and say, I'm learning to love myself. I've forgiven myself. I can accept myself. So must you. No, I won't. You didn't make a mistake. A mistake is when you're trying your best to get something right but you inadvertently get it wrong. A mistake is when you misread the instructions that IKEA have given you and you've put the legs on the table upside down or the doors on the wardrobe open inwards instead of outwards. That's a mistake. You, Mr. or Mrs. Politician knew exactly what you were doing you knew it was wrong you did it anyway you thought and hoped that you would get away with it you're just very peeved because you've been found out that was no mistake All this nonsense that the world spouts, the Bible cuts right through and lays bare the truth. We sinners, with our proud and stubborn hearts, find it to be a most unpalatable truth. But the truth It most certainly is. Question number one. What is this truth? Why is the world like those examples I've just given? Because it simply will not accept the unpalatable truth which the Apostle Paul begins his grand exposition of the gospel with in the book of Romans. Let me just remind you of a few of the little phrases that he uses in the opening chapters of Romans. We all suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God's attributes are clearly seen and we are without excuse. We are futile in our thoughts and our foolish hearts are dark, We profess to be wise, but we are fools. We've exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And we worship ourselves instead of God. We have debased minds, and our nature is to do things which are not fitting. These are all phrases you'll find in the opening chapters of Romans. We are filled with filled with all unrighteousness. And then in verses 29 to 31 of chapter 1, Paul lists no less than 22 examples of unrighteousness. And... Before you start thinking, well, this is all to do with murderers and people who commit horrible, horrible things like that, it's interesting. Look through the list. Covetousness. Envy. It's listed alongside things like murder. Envy. Whisperers. You're a whisperer? Unforgiving. No, I simply cannot, will not forgive. Proud. Proud. Listed alongside those heinous crimes. All lumped together. In your own time, you might like to uh, have a look at psalms 14 and 53 and compare them to what we read in chapter 3 of romans from verse 10 paul says as it's written there is none righteous no not one there is none who understands none who seeks god they have all turned aside they have together become unprofitable there is none who does good And you might like to compare that to Psalms 14 and 53 to see that this has been the persistent problem all through the ages and this is God's consistent view of fallen, sinful men and women in the world. Now, of course, the world would say, you can't say that. You can't judge people like that. You can't make those kinds of accusations against people. You'll hurt their feelings. And worse, you'll destroy their self-esteem. To which the Bible replies, there is nothing in you to be esteemed. That's not the message the world wants to hear. It's not the message the world peddles but it's the truth of God's Word. The Apostle Paul uses the first two and a half chapters of Romans, two and a half of 16 chapters, to lay bare this unpalatable truth that we do not want to hear as sinners. Sadly, many churches and some Christians today take the view that You will be on a hiding to nothing if you mention any of this to people if you want to speak to them about the gospel. But Paul doesn't listen to those voices and neither should you. This is where Paul begins. Romans is all about explaining the gospel of Christ but this is where he starts. And he takes two and a half chapters to do it. You see... It's because of this truth that Jesus came into the world. This is why he came. It's because of this truth that you need a saviour. It's because of this truth that everyone outside of these four walls needs a saviour. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a generally nice, respectable person like me. They're the words the world wants to sing. Such generally nice, respectable people cannot get past point one of the gospel. Because point one says, you're a miserable wretch. As John Newton knew only too well. You're under the condemnation of a holy and righteous God. And to that message, the generally nice, respectable person says, I'm sorry, you've got the wrong address, and closes the door. The good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is good news for thoroughly rotten people. You can't really say you've become a Christian and accepted Christ if you have in yourself remained ignorant of this basic reality. The person who gets it right with God, the person who gets right with God and is accepted by Him is the one who cries out to God for mercy as the extent of their sin engulfs them and they beat their breast in shame before Him. At least that's the illustration Jesus used. And Jesus also said that he didn't come into this world for those who think they are well. He came into this world for those who know they are very sick. This reality of how we stand as sinners before a holy God Is the malady that Christ came to cure. And the end of those who die in their sins is the destiny from which Christ came to save us. The second thing that Paul makes clear in this passage is the answer to the question who does this truth affect? Who does this truth affect? Well, you don't have to study these chapters very deeply for fear of missing the answer to that question. It becomes apparent at once that Paul is applying these truths to all of mankind. Chapter 1, verse 18, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And that word men is his way of saying all of mankind. Chapter 3, verse 9, We've previously charged both Jews and Greeks. That's Paul's way of saying the whole population. Because basically, in his day, you kind of were either Jewish or Greek. They were the two major influences. This is everybody. They are all under sin, he says. And then in those verses that we read from chapter three, four times, he says, There is none. There is none. And he says, They have all. And then, of course, later on in chapter 3, there's that well-known verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This truth affects everybody. All of us are included in God's assessment and verdict on mankind. There is no one who's exempt. Well, of course, there has been just one, the Lord Jesus himself, but none of us are exempt. And, of course, one of the problems is that with this sinful nature and with this guilt that we're all in, with that comes the inability to see things from God's perspective. So, a little later on in Romans, in chapter 8, from verse 5, Paul says this, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally or fleshly or worldly minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God. It cannot be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God God and of course Paul says something similar in in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 at verse 14 in your sinful fallen state you cannot know or understand the things of God because they are spiritually discerned but you are spiritually dead and of course in reading the scriptures and in reading these this uh This great verdict and assessment of humankind in the world. When you look around the world today, you don't have to look very far, and it doesn't take you very long to discover plenty of examples of all of those things that Paul is talking about in these early chapters of Romans. Of course, the problem is one of the effects of sin is a proud ego that likes to think that when you read these kinds of things in the Bible you actually, you're kind of in a silent majority to whom these words don't apply. These verses are just talking about the really nasty, sinister characters in the world. But such wishful thinking is scuppered by this part of God's Word as it hammers home the message that all of us have a nature which is totally flawed, Completely marred and ruined through and through by sin. In our sinful state, every aspect of us our minds, our will, our affections, our motives, thoughts, feelings, desires they're all tainted horribly with sin. There is no part of us that is pure and good. And this, of course, can be seen so clearly in our words and in our deeds. These truths really wind people up. This statement in God's word, that there is no one good. We're all unprofitable to God, who is holy and righteous. Surely there must be enough good in me. Surely I'm not that wicked. I'll borrow one of Eamon's illustrations. Well, a slight variation on it. Imagine a surgeon in theatre. The nurse beside him, the one who hands all the instruments to him as he asks for them. She opens up the packet of instruments She expects them to be pristine, sterile, only to discover there's been a mistake somewhere and they're all filthy from a previous operation. She shows the surgeon. Some of them are caked in blood. Some only have a few spatters of blood. And actually one of them, that actually looks quite clean. How many of those instruments are acceptable to the surgeon? How many of them would you have inside of you? Not a single one. Where must they all go? Back to be thoroughly cleaned and sterilized. They all need and will receive exactly the same treatment. Some look worse than others. But if you were to take some swabs of each instrument, you'd probably find that pretty much They've all got the same nasties on them that you don't want inside you. Does the surgeon take that one that doesn't look too bad, wipe it on his scrubs and say, this'll do? No way. They're all rejected because they're all contaminated and there is none good. No, not one. And that's you, and me, and everyone out there. It is true, of course, that by God's grace, most of us are kept from being as wicked as we might be. But that's just God's graciousness in this world. By God's grace, many people can find it in themselves to show some degree of respect for law and order, and some degree of kindness towards their fellow man. Most people can. But none of us does any of those things, anything like perfectly. Not even close. There is non-righteous. No, not one. This is the truth that Paul starts with. This is the first point of truth you you have to confront if you're going to consider the Lord Jesus Christ and why he came. And thirdly, Paul tells us what this truth is. He tells us who this truth affects. And he also tells us what this truth brings. What this truth brings In these same opening chapters of Romans, we read this. The wrath. If you're not sure what the word wrath means, the active anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. You are treasuring up for yourself. Some treasure, this is. You're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. God will render to each one according to his deeds indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. Please note that the Bible teaches that God's anger and judgment is not so much against the things that have been done. It is against those who practice them. God's anger and judgment does not fall upon sin in some way that is totally disconnected from us. God's anger and judgment falls upon sinners. People. God is angry against sinners. We read this in Psalm 5. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. Speaking of God, the psalmist says this. You hate all workers of iniquity. That's people. God hates, you shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Psalm 7, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. The world finds this an unpalatable truth. Sadly, some Christians do as well. But it's the truth. And some say, ah, but that's just the Old Testament. That's just the Old Testament. 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against... Those who do evil. Now, God's common grace is upon the whole world. So there is a sense in which everybody receives evidence of God's loving kindness every day, even the most wicked person. But God has a particular grace and God has a particular love which is known and will only ever be known by his people, experienced only by those who are children of God, by virtue of them being born again followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, says the Bible, his anger burns hot against all who remain unrepentant and unbelieving in their sins. Don't be deceived or mistaken on this issue. There are many in the Christian world who would deceive you on this issue. The only thing we ever mention is God is love. It's all people need to know. No, it is not. The message has to start where Paul starts. The message has to start where the Bible starts. Paul is teaching in these verses in Romans of a time only known to God the Father when the Lord Jesus Christ will one day return in glory and power and those who have rejected the good news of Jesus Christ will stand before Him and God will render to each one everlasting punishment according to their deeds and all in line with His perfect will and justice. Now if you've heard people in the world who rail against this kind of thing now some of the more common voices you may have heard the likes of Richard Dawkins we mentioned him again Stephen Fry speaking about God's judgment on mankind because of sin you'll hear them describe God as pernicious vindictive vengeful spiteful a tyrant And that's why you are to reject it, they say. Listen to what God says to his prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Those who want to turn things completely the other way around and say, No, it's not like that, it's like this. Woe to them. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Don't listen to those voices who want to twist it the other way around and say, no, the Bible's got it all wrong. No, the Bible's got it all right. They reject God's judgment because they reject the notion of sin. They reject the notion of sin because they reject the existence of God who is sinned against. They reject the existence of God because they do not want to be accountable to anyone except themselves. Because as we saw at the beginning, modern psychology tells you that it's just about you and no one else. You just have to love yourself, forgive yourself and accept yourself. And that's all that matters. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about you. But we read in John's Gospel, he who does not believe in Christ is condemned already. He shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. i can just see in my mind's eye countless millions standing before the judgment throne of god and they're all saying i'm sorry lord i just made a mistake please overlook that because really i'm I'm a very nice person and and, you know i've learned to love myself and i've forgiven myself and i can accept myself so you can too the world you see in its blindness and in its darkness hates the gospel because the gospel first calls people to face this unpalatable truth that all have sinned that there none non-righteous and that we're all guilty but the world detests it but you see this truth makes complete sense of the phrase that we looked at last week, Christ died for our sins. These truths at the beginning of Romans make complete sense of that, don't they? This is what Christ died for. We saw last Sunday evening in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lays out for us in the clearest and most simple terms... Those truths concerning the Lord Jesus Christ which lie at the heart of the gospel message. You remember that the first of those, Christ died for our sins. Why did he have to do that? Because this is how serious sin is. It's obvious when we read the Bible... Where it says Christ died for our sins, the phrase for our sins means in our place as our substitute to bear in his own body that suffering and punishment which every sinful man and woman and boy and girl deserves. When you read the Gospels, when you read of Christ's suffering and agony, when you read of the brutality with which the Romans treated him and then execute him, the Bible's explanation for all of that is this. That is what you deserved because of your sins. Because that is how serious your sin is in God's eyes. And that is how great your offense is against him. When you look at the suffering and the agony of Christ, The Bible says that should be happening to you. But Jesus came to save his people from their sins. It's so much more than saving you from yourself. It's so much more than saving you from your poor and meager existence that you currently have because you're a sinner. Christ has come to save you from your sin. He's come to save you from sin's penalty, as you read about it in the opening chapters of Romans here. When it comes to the gospel message, many Christians would like to start the gospel at Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Let's get straight to the positive-sounding stuff. Let's get straight to the stuff that will make people feel good about themselves. But Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, did not begin there. Neither must you. The good news of Jesus Christ has to be set in its context. That's what Paul is doing in Romans. He's setting the good news of Christ in its proper context. You need to know who and what you are as a sinner in the eyes of God. And what the result of that is going to be. It's bleak reading, isn't it? It's meant to be. It's meant to be. It's meant to be because in your sin, your position before God is dire. But the good news of the gospel is that having been confronted with this unpalatable truth, God brings his incredible response in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we call the gospel good news? Because of Romans chapters 1 and 2 and 3. On the basis of how Paul introduces this letter and the truths that he brings to us, How can anyone hope to be accepted by God? We've got good news. You can. You can. Through Christ. Only through Christ. But definitely through Christ. How can anyone be acceptable? To God. Well, that's our theme this evening. You can through Christ.